I don't think that anybody ever owns communities. You're always kind of co-creating with that group and influencing with that group. When you lead those communities, it's not like you're in charge of them, you're representing them. You're listening to the words of Sarah Drinkwater. Sarah is the head of Campus London, Google's amazing space for startups. She's one of the most powerful community builders in London. I think we can all agree um, she's all about community. Sarah's on the board of Code First Girls, a company helping talented young women upskill for tech roles. She is also on the board of a fantastic makerspace called Black Horse Workshop. She has helped set up Campus for Moms, the UK's first baby-friendly startup school, and she is also the chair of Women at Google. No biggie. Sarah's an amazing speaker and host, and you can see her talking about storytelling, women in tech, communities, and product. Today, we talk about leadership, the power of communities, using technology for good, and the growth of the creative and tech community in London and beyond, and the rise of the creative generalists who will lead the future of work. And here's today's show. I'm Victoria Stianova, and this is The Work We Do, a podcast about people redefining the meaning and purpose of work. But thank you so much for making the time. It's okay. I really appreciate it. I think it's a nice thing to do. Yeah, I'm excited. It's also a great topic. I love you know, future of work as a whole and how we'll work in the future and how we'll be creative in the future. Very well, cool. I just, I'm just thinking a lot about what are we doing for that? What are, what's our contribution to yeah. the support system of the next wave of people who don't really have job titles and make yes. different things at the same time? One thing I would love to talk about is um, I went on a massive rant last night about like my theory with all of the worries about automation is partly... I don't think the worry for me is about how we work in the future. I think it's about how we live. And yeah. there's a piece around like, you know, when I joined Google, my career was such a patchwork. I'd run theater companies. I managed a shop. I'd, you know, I'd launched startups. Like they were a company that really surpassed all of that. I think CVs are completely obsolete. Yeah. And for lots of your listeners, CVs are done. It's quite network based. How do you make it equal in a world where connections can be quite hard to find? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, and all of us do five things at once. Like many people. Yeah. You know. Like I was, Applying, I was submitting my profile to Yuno Juno, the yeah. freelance network, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, sorry, podcast host is not something that we offer." And I'm like, "No, we haven't read. You haven't yeah, read yeah, what yeah, I yeah. submitted because." But that's because people can be very binary. Like certain, yeah. certainly the older generation, I think, has to be like, "What's the one thing you do?" And I think and there's no such thing. We're generalists, right? And that's a good thing. I think the future needs creative generalists and a certain portion of specialists, but. But if, so I do a little bit of uh, teaching right now at EOIL, mm. both to masters and undergrads. Yeah. And a lot of the anger that I'm getting from them is everyone tells us, oh, yeah, just follow your passion and everything's going to be fine yeah. and stuff is going to figure itself out. But they say, where do I start and yeah. how do I go about? I want to do many things and experience many things, but yeah. what is the kickoff? Yeah. And that's something that I feel things like lecture in progress that Will Hudson is doing. Yeah. It's nice that. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. you seen that? It's, like it's really so cool. cool. So I'm always thinking, is there a collective of the future of work where we can yeah. aggregate resources yeah. and act as the support yeah. network for I think it's, it's definitely partly support network. It's also partly most smart pe- many smart people keep starting their own things when they're like 16, 15, whatever. But I think a lot of kids in the UK have been sold this myth of like, 
you know, when I was a kid, it was like, okay, you go to university. I genuinely thought I would stop learning at 21, work for like 45 years and retire and die. Like that was the path. And it's like, particularly with university now being so expensive, I think a lot of kids are in uni and they're like, oh, this is great space to think, but mm -hmm. I want to be out doing. Um, and I think it's always, you know, most, many companies still look at CVs and it's like, okay, well, this route is closed to you because of X, Y, Z. And I think for a lot of these people, how do they keep their creativity flow, but also, you know, be able to keep routes open to themselves as long as possible, right? Like, yeah. obviously, I'm not going to go and be a lawyer right now, but I feel like there are any one of a number of things I could do next, all of which, you know, if they were correlated to my interests, would be kind of cool, right? So mm -hmm. it's just keeping your options open, which, you know, yeah, and I think most of this group innately get. If you keep being curious about stuff and keep learning things, then eventually it starts to make sense yeah. because your care about community is not yeah. absolutely disconnected from care about words. Yeah. And then eventually you can combine and recombine these different parts of you. But I feel that it sounds completely crazy if you're sitting in a university yeah. lecture hall and someone is telling you, don't worry, it's going to figure itself out. <laughs> it's not yeah. what they want to hear. Yes, very true. So I always start by asking my guests what their current state of mind is, because I want to know what is, what is going on in your world right now. I love it. So I've had a couple of weeks of intense travel. Um, I was in Beirut for a week, um, helping my friend run this amazing program called Data for Change, uh, helping human rights organizations tell better stories. Um, and then I was also in California speaking at Lesbians Who Tech. And I got back a few days ago. I've had a really busy week and I'm feeling really reflective today feeling kind of like end of the week and settled and calm and quiet, which for me is quite unusual. Oh, I love that. Is there something that you have integrated in your super busy life to create moments of reflection? And do you have rituals around that? I do. Um, a lot of them are only recent, partly because I have not always been as organized with the stuff as I would like to be. I have a tendency <laughs> towards being a little bit chaotic sometimes. I'm really weird about my evenings. I feel like, um, you know, if I'm at home in the evening, which probably is only a few times a week, um, I never take my phone upstairs. My phone doesn't go upstairs in my house. I charge it in a different room. I read every single night. Um, you know, I personally always make time to kind of read books and whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I just like to have that space. Um, and particularly, you know, my husband and I have a coffee together every single morning. It's just our moment to kind of sit down together. We don't always get a ton of time together during the week, but it's our time to sit down together, talk about our days, talk about stuff we've heard on the radio or podcast, whatever. Um, that sounds really basic, but to me, having the kind of beginning of the day and the end of the day, having these moments where mm -hmm. I'm not looking at a screen um, or I'm connecting either to him or to um, whatever I'm reading at that time just gives me space, makes okay. me happy. Oh, I've always wondered this about you because in your titles about what you do, it's very much around tech and empowering different communities, but I'm always thinking, but she's also a curator and she's not really telling anyone, but you have a very specific way of picking out different bits of, of culture and bigger, more philosophical social questions. I so, so I think that's... Yeah, I've always thought, when does that happen in your day when you're yeah. also... Well, I guess, um, you know, I grew up with a dad who was a developer, so I've got all of my siblings are developers too. Um, and I'm the creative black sheep. So when I was a kid, I learned to code, but I was always a really creative child. And I think then there was this notion that you had to pick and choose. You had to be like one or the other, arts or science. Um, you know, I've got two arts degrees. I did a master's in 
um, Renaissance literature that's like all about collaborative verse. I've always had a really strong interest in co-creation and how people work together. Um, and I spent all of my 20s as a journalist, you know, running a theatre company, running a clothing shop. Um, and I came into tech quite late, you know, in my early 30s. And I think about tech as an amazing tool. I don't really think of it as an industry in that way. And if I think about the tech, I get really excited about its um, civic tech, you know, things that help us, you know, have more open democracies. Um, a lot of the guys I met in Beirut, you know, they're based in Egypt and they're running these underground newspapers powered by tech. And I get really excited wow. by that as an ex-journalist. Um, and I also tend to love a lot of the work around Tech for Good. And if I think about where I get inspiration, you know, um, I love to read, I love seeing plays, I'm always going to love clothes. Those are just interests I've had in the yes. long term. And I've got lots of friends who are creative who don't really care about my field of work, and I really like that. I think it's quite <laughs> healthy to have friends who, um, you know, a lot of the startup world, which I love, can be a little bit insular sometimes. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important in London where we have people who work in so many industries to keep your eyes open and take inspiration and learn from everywhere. Would you live anywhere else? Oh, right yeah. Now? Yeah. I mean, I've been lucky enough to live in, in Germany, in Tel Aviv, in India. Um, I'm always curious about like a Berlin or an Amsterdam or a Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. um, I think they have a lot of what I love about London. They're super diverse. You know, that for me was always a big draw to London. I grew up in a very small community that was very similar looking. Um, <laughs> And it was just really exciting to me, the idea of having like Ethiopian food, mm. you know, having a Swedish friend who's married to a Kiwi friend, you know what I mean? Um, and if I look at particularly Berlin, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, they have these incredibly interesting creative scenes, just like London. There's always places I look to and think. And they also, they have good recycling and I love cycling. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to unpack a little bit your, your journey and how mm. you ended up where you are now. Um, particularly questions around leadership mm -hmm. and if there was a particular moment you remember of oh I have to lead here because I see you as someone who's an incredible role model when it comes to leading in a very strong graceful you know embodied way and I just wonder what when did that happen what's the story I'm gonna tell you about two moments okay. um, both of them are moments when I realized I had to lead, but in quite a different way, I think mm -hmm. is the question you're asking me. So the first one, um, when I grew up, I really wanted to be a writer. I watched a lot of black and white films, and I particularly loved the film His Girl Friday, which is like, it's just got this like whip-smart female journalist who's got this rat-a-tat dialogue, and her ex is Karen Grant, and I just watched it and thought, this looks amazing. She has all this power. Um, and I went through university, and I was really lucky in my master's to I did some temp work at Penguin Books and they offered me a job while I was there. And it was just this incredibly prestigious job that people were chasing for and I didn't like it, I was bored by it and mm -hmm. it, it didn't feel like me. Um, and at the same time my friend and I ran a theatre company and we went to the Edinburgh Festival and while I was there I got approached by an agent who was like, oh, I'd love to sign you to, you know, to help you write sort of TV scripts. Um, and I was like, great, I'll quit Penguin, this is amazing, this is my new life and mm -hmm. everything's going to be so great. And a few months later, um, I was dropped by the agent. And I had to lead in that I had to really pick up my ego. You know, I'd been to a really good university and I'd been told by a lot of people, oh, you know, you've mm -hmm. done so amazingly well, you know. And it was the best, it was the best thing that could have, could have happened to me in my early 20s because I, I went and worked in a clothing shop for two years. And that teaches you a lot about humility. Yes. And it teaches you a lot about how people treat shop staff. You know, I was still running this pretty cool vintage shop, but at the time, I always judge people by how they treat people like waiters, um, shop staff, because a lot of those guys are really interesting and haven't had mm -hmm. the opportunities that many of us have had. I think that was one moment that really sticks out. 
And I think the second moment is um, when I first joined Google, you know, I had this kind of really interesting wayward journey. And at my last startup, which we ended up selling to Yelp, I was approached by Google to come and join and start this entirely new team. And I'd worked in large-ish organizations before, but never in tech. And for me, you know, I got offered the job on Friday and they said, can you be in New York on Monday? Mm -hmm. um, and I of made course. it work. <laughs> Naturally. You know, I made it work and I got there and it was um, such a new world. I was working in engineering and I'm not super technical as you can tell from my background. And people were really friendly and really smart. Um, and I had to really work through my imposter syndrome and kind of put a team together um, in a couple of continents. And the whole time I kept thinking, oh my God. Um, it was pretty amazing to have that trust in me because I kept thinking, I don't really know what I'm doing. But it was incredibly, um, I learned so much in that year and I made so many mistakes and every mistake I made taught me more, you know? Mm. So it was really, I guess the way that I think about leadership, I'm a really big fan of democratic leadership. I think when I was a kid, I grew up with a lot of pictures of, it was the 80s, right? So it was like shoulder pads and I am the boss. And if I look at leaders I admire, and I've been lucky enough to work for a couple of amazing leaders, they're people who balance kind of focus and grace. They're people who really have a very authentic style of kind of working and and they, um, you know, I see my role here as being kind of a coach. You know, I've, I'm also a trained coach on the side because I'm mm -hmm. really interested in that area of work. And I see my role as helping people be successful. Um, and that's what I observe great bosses do and what I aspire to be is someone who helps to help others be creative and kind of accelerate to where they want to go. Um, and it goes back to shared mission, right? So with a team big or small, if, you're, if you can help to create trust and safety, if you can help people to be honest about where they want to go, um, you know, whether their individual mission is running world-class education, whether it's really about providing cultural connections to a community mm -hmm. as diverse as ours, those are both incredibly worthwhile and exciting things. And if I can help, that's amazing. That's great. <laughs> I'm like, so are you hiring right now? <laughs> Always. Um, I was thinking with um, with Gillian about this, about mm. leadership and how sometimes you just don't realize that you're put on the spot and you just have to take it and and go with it. I love that. I had moments like this um, last year where I would have certain communities, so Sandbox or Creative yeah. Mornings, and people would say, you're stepping up for that role, right? Because yeah. we would like to have you representing us. And I was like, uh, I'm really not ready for this. Why are people saying yeah, that? Yeah. And I think there's something beautiful when your community decides that for you. Yeah. And, and it can be so organic, right? And I think, um, so I also chair women at Google. I, I told myself last year that I wouldn't take on any more side projects. Um, but? And then I broke, <laughs> I broke my vow. It just, I just, you know, I got approached and, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, the women who work within Google who are kind of advocating for inclusive cultures. And I was like, actually, I really care about this. Um, you know, I guess I've had that feedback for a long time. Even when I was a kid, I was organizing book groups and things. Um, and I think that's partly something around the desire to convene and partly something around the desire to kind of nudge communities. And you know, I don't think that anybody ever owns communities. You're always kind of co-creating with that group and influencing with that group. Um, and I think there's something kind of interesting about when you lead those communities, it's not like you're in charge of them, you're representing them, so you're in service to them. And I think 100%. that's a really interesting like master-servant dynamic. Um, and I think a lot of the styles of leadership that we see as being archaic now, 
have this very much I am the boss, do what I say mentality. And I think there's a whole new, and I don't want to ally it too much to gender because I feel like that's archaic, but you know, I see it as being a very empathetic style of leadership that I mm -hmm. personally respect and you know, admire. But I feel that that's where a lot of people get community wrong. A lot mm -hmm. of brands yeah, and completely. spaces when they would say, oh, we own a community and we have this community. And it's like, not yeah, really, you like are that. an aggregator, but yeah. you cannot claim it. And I feel the moment you claim it, that's when you yeah. disperse everyone. And yeah. I get quite frustrated it. by this, having worked in community for quite a long time. You know, when I moved into startups, you know, I was first hired to write copy and I was very much always a words person. And, you know, gradually forged a path being the kind of middleman between the product and engineering teams and the users. And in every company, we ended up building communities, but, you know, community work is often undervalued, underpaid, I would argue. Um, yeah. Often the way that brands look at community is so short term, it's embarrassing. Um, and it's very transactional. And I think mm -hmm. we all know if you look at the tribes you belong to in your life, you know, I'm a Londoner, I went to a certain university, I'm really passionate about certain things. I've got my tribe of theatre friends, I've got my tribe, you know, the group that went to Beirut who, who kind of really believe in changing the world. These aren't causes I've taken up overnight. These are things that I've, I've had a belief in for like mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years. Um, and, you know, with brand communities, you know, it's a little bit the same. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are people out there who feel particularly passionate about, you know, there are certain... I can't imagine feeling that passionate about certain brands. That's just not my world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, being, I'm being inarticulate with this, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I saw this a lot. I worked very briefly in agencies with, with brands, um, particularly around a very well-known phone brand, and I really saw a lot of the way, a lot of their direction and guidance in a very old-fashioned leadership hierarchy mm -hmm. to me was delete Facebook posts that are negative. This is the noughties, very different era. Um, we don't engage with people. We don't answer. We don't respond. So really... To me, that's not a community, that's a customer base that you don't really respect. Different mm. thing. I noticed that when you talk about community online, you often say communities in plural. Yeah. Is that, is that the conscious? Yeah. Well, I guess, um, I guess it's all about convergence, right? I think we're all many things at once. And I think that's why I don't like the term on life, but I think increasingly... I feel like I'm the same person offline, online, mm -hmm. and probably a little bit of a different person depending on which community I'm in at any one time. But if you think about the campus communities, you know, in our London community, we have all kinds of members, 85,000 people, 40% female. Within that, there are so many diversities of what they're working on, what they care about, where they're from, where they're going. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think it's very London. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's very... I think often we opt for the simple narrative and humans are just more complicated than that and more interesting. And 100%. that's the joy of it, right? Like, yeah. yeah, that's something I'm um, thinking about at the moment because a lot of my work these days is around creating separate communities yeah. for um, startups or corporates yeah. or, or spaces. And then I'm often thinking, actually you do not need yeah. that ecosystem around you necessarily what you need is to be able to tap in a macro community because every individual at a given time belongs to many communities at once so yeah. why would everyone be managing all these different you know what i yeah. mean so well, it just gets really fragmented right and i think particularly in a city like london it's so big and noisy if i look at what our community really want 
the thing we hear consistently, it's, it's all around connection. Mm-hmm. Not all the connections, but like the right connections at the right time. Yeah. And not the right connections in like a transactional way, but just um, belonging and um, culture and, you know, like that feeling of that feeling of belonging that I think we're all searching for. Yes. You know, if you're if you're like you, I've been new in the city and that first year was tough. Um, and I remember how strange it felt. You know, I come from a place where you walk down the street and everyone knows who you are, which mm-hmm. I found very hard as a kid. <laughs> um, and in London, it can be the opposite, right? So the idea of going to these smaller, you know, personally, I love things like dinners. I'm really into that. Like 25 people around a table talking about what they really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always going to love that more than 500 people in a room <laughs> watching a screen. More fun. <laughs> and how has uh, campus changed over the years? I feel like there's been such a, a wonderful, you know, it, it's been the place that has anchored the tech community from the start. So. so how is there anything that you can see as a tangible? Yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I think um, I think when we launched in 2012, the tech community, like we were still talking about the tech community as if it was a separate thing, right? <laughs> um, and it was more often than not a certain kind of person who came from a certain kind of background. And what I love about what we're doing now is, you know, we don't have a specialism. You know, you have places like Level 39 that are the best places to go with, with FinTech, for example. But with the majority of our community, apart from our programming, they're working on everything from fashion to fintech, mm-hmm. often many things at the same time. Again, to your point around um, multiple potentials and multiple careers, multi-potentials, I guess. Um, and what I think is really interesting, first of all, is that our community is massively diversified over time. I think that's a wider trend. Um, and by that, I don't mean, I mean, obviously I mean things like gender, I think background, et cetera, but also the types of companies, the types of interest. You know, I think when we started out in 2012, Many of our community were quite young guys mm-hmm. who really wanted to build a massive product and make lots of money. Um, I think now our community is wider and more baggy and more nebulous than ever. And there are all kinds of different flows. You know, there are still those guys that come in at a young age and want to build a company and make lots of money. Um, there are all kinds of people that come in because they want to set up an initiative or a project. Yes. I mean, obviously, we kind of focus on startups. Um, I think that's one thing. And I think the second thing is the globalness of our community. You know, we have six campuses around the world, 55 partner spaces. Um, and the other campuses are in places like Seoul, Sao Paulo, Warsaw, Madrid, Tel Aviv. And the partners are places like Numa in Paris, or mm-hmm. like Central in Mexico City, or like Gaza Sky Geeks. And if I look at what makes London different from all the other communities around the world, um, our community's older, average age 34. Um, and we travel more than anybody else. So like we mm. have this passport scheme where if you have membership here, you can walk into anywhere else and sit down and work. And Consistently, I get emails from Londoners who are like in Brazil or in Sydney or in Karachi, and I just think that's really cool. I think um, it's that realization of a bigger world that I think is just so important. It's so easy if you're building something to have your head down, have your blinkers mm-hmm. on. Um, but to me, you know, there's so much risk in starting your own thing. You've got to do it for the thing you care about most. Um, and for all the things I care about most, it's global. Like it's, it's making a difference to the whole world, not just to mm-hmm. a small segment of people within it. Yeah. Do you think how we how we work is going to change in terms of dif- being able to go to any space and yeah. get a different type of energy and yeah. being nurtured in a different way? Because sometimes I think, I think so. um, wouldn't it be nice to have a space for deep focus somewhere you need that. in the woods and then a space for a more social yeah. type of um, interaction. I think that's very true. I mean, what we find with our space is, you know, 
couple of hundred desks in our cafe, that space does not suit every day of the week, right? There's yeah. a couple of days a week when you want the deep focus and a couple of days a week when you want to be, you know, perhaps having more connection, being around other people, having that different energy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think the way we work is going to massively shift and I think partly that's based on my personal experience. You know, as a kid, I genuinely thought the message I was given is you're going to learn to know 21, you're going to work for 45 years, you're going to retire, that's it, very linear. And if I look at my personal experience, I've pursued things I've loved, I've done them for a certain portion of time, yeah. I've either fallen out of love with them or something else has come along and I've been like, oh, this opportunity is amazing. Yeah. And if I look at our community, they, the way they travel, the way they work, their open-mindedness to new things, it's really inspiring. And I think increasingly the idea of working, you know, if I look at my dad's generation, for example, I'm very lucky and my dad's always passionately loved what he does mm -hmm. and worked for a ton of different companies. He's not the kind of person who's done 40 years in the same firm. And I'm really lucky to have that as a role model. But um, many people in his generation do still think of careers as being linear and you're all working towards being the CEO or whatever. Whereas I think success gets defined so differently in this world. You know, there's going to be times when getting a certain level of salary or a certain status might be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but to be honest, I see that as being less important to our community. They want to make a difference. They want to keep learning. They want to work on projects that give them happiness and energy and passion every day. Um, and maybe that's because this community is very lucky and has comparative privilege. But I think that's a, a wider trend that we're seeing of, of portfolio careers, constant learning, constant travel, experiences, experiences versus owning things. You know, these are all things that I think will, I think a lot of this is starting in these kind of communities like London, but I can't see how it wouldn't scale to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes you think, oh, I am so lucky to mm. be able to work from anywhere and yeah. mostly work remotely and travel around and design a Your life time. where I get exactly the type of um, experience that I want to yeah. with very little compromise when it comes to, okay, yeah. I really have to be in the space for that amount of time. But I think it's just, I think that's... The canary in the mine, if you think about, I was at dinner last night talking about automation and the future of AI, and I'm, I mean, I'm an optimist in general, I can't help it. I think a lot of the press around the robots will take our jobs has been like really overblown. And a lot of it's been informed by, if you think about all the movies we watched as kids, whether it's like Metropolis or the Jetsons, there's a lot of the influence of like robots will take yeah. our jobs comes from that. Um, and I guess I would counter by saying, so much of the work that we do, and work and jobs and tasks are very different to each other. A lot of the work that we do is really dehumanizing. If mm -hmm. you think about like somebody who works in a factory or something where it's a very repetitive task, why shouldn't that go to a robot and that person have more freedom in their life? Yeah. And I think it's a pretty exciting opportunity for us to rethink how we live, um, you know, for the average person to think, how can I have the experiences I want? Mm -hmm. How can I design my life in a way that brings me happiness and fulfillment? And I think that's, I feel like we have this unique opportunity to redesign our lives completely. Um, and I think people like you who are doing that already are just at the forefront of this work. Mm -hmm. I think in time you'll look back and see how that's influenced the wider culture. You know, right now it might be a small portion of people, but I see that as being a real trend. I hope so. I really hope so. Because um, there's definitely friction in the day-to-day -day when I'm sure. a lot of uh, people around me, we struggle to define exactly what we do. Yeah. and what type of job title do you choose to describe something but with things like this podcast for me being able to show more voices who do things differently mm. and shine a light on a quiet movement that yeah. i think is growing but even silly things like you know technically you know, obviously i do work for one company and i do work here full time but 
you know, I have so much fluidity in my day. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I'm someone that really, really resists and dislikes routine and really struggles with it <laughs> a lot. Um, so to me, to me, my version of an ideal day is I get energy from meeting lots of interesting people. I get energy from having a very different routine every day. Yeah. I travel quite a lot and I love that. Um, and I think I've been able to design my work around what I care about. And um, I think even in a full-time job, you can do that. It depends on the company that you work for. Oh, yeah, of course. I was reading the Designing Your Life book oh, yeah, by I the like Stanford that. guys. Yeah, it's yeah, so good. It's really good. And there is um, a point where they have an energy journal yeah. where you can track the different activities you oh, have in so the day. Important. And what is your level of energy? Were you in flow? So you can yeah. say, oh, this week I have a lot of large meetings and that is very draining. How can I compensate yeah. so that overall yeah, the that. energy the week would be good. So I've been doing a lot of that when I'm planifying yeah. my week, just saying, aha, uh -huh, okay, this is where. I think that's pretty, just. because one thing, um, one of the things I did in Beirut with all these human rights organizations, so I was there as like a extra mentor, basically, kind of a coach for the team leads. Um, and one thing we were doing on the first day was a workshop that I love called True Colors. It's very Californian. What is that? Um, Tell it's me. called True Colors. It's like super Californian. Basically, um, <laughs> my team leads are you know, they are middle, you know, they're from uh, Jordan and Lebanon, but they're based in like Paris, Milan, mm -hmm. Portland, Cairo. Um, you know, and these team leads for the most part in their day jobs, you know, they run agencies and teams, but the groups they're being asked to leave for this week are from all over the world with very different backgrounds. Okay. And this particular test looks at um, the energies that are dominant within us and the energies that aren't and okay. how you flex better to work with other people. And the thing I've always found, and I know to be true, is that my, what I find hard is spreadsheets detail which is hard because that's part of my job so it's like how do I how do I kind of plan my week so when I have to do that work mm -hmm. I don't find it super draining I can do it to the best of my ability how do I hire people around me who are really good at that and that's yeah. their favorite thing which is always my first thing in a new job I'm always like oh my god must hire someone to help with spreadsheets because I'm really bad at that you know <laughs> oh. one to ten how much do you love spreadsheets <laughs> 1.5 extremely low um I want to talk about women. Okay. For many I reasons. <laughs> so are you. Well, so it was uh, International Women's Day yesterday. I love Anne Friedman. Yeah. So I've met her twice. Have you? She's so amazing. Oh, great. I'm such a fan. I didn't really say much to her beyond, oh, I love you. She's so, she's so tall. I, okay. <laughs> I just really liked that tweet she posted a few days ago. And I thought millennial it was, pink oh washing. my God. Yes. So she says, millennial pinkwashing. <laughs> When you take an established feminist concept and drape it in pale pink startup branding and sell it off to sponsors, ideally companies that are selling women fitness, beauty oh. products or corporate advancements. I think that's really fair because if you look at, um, you know, if you look at IWD, it's, it's many of these things are community movements, right? Like mm -hmm. Black History Month, it's all about like celebrating ourselves and kind of working out how we advance as a community. Um, and actually, my woman at Community on Wednesday ran a big event that was um, called Press for Progress. And it was 50% male speakers, lots of guys in the audience, um, just talking about topics that all of us care about around how we can bring better working culture to our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think what's frustrating is when you see a brand that's had little interaction previously with this community jump on this. And um, it just seems very unauthentic. And going back to our talk earlier about communities, I think consumers and customers and watchers see through all these things, right? It seems yeah. very false and it seems very, um, you know, I think we're in an era more than ever where we demand a certain level of transparency. Mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, your values are what they are, right? You can't suddenly change and be like, well, now I care about this. Yeah. I mean, of course, yeah. we're always learning, right? Yeah. But um, but when Brewdog turn around and say, we've got oh, this gosh. pink beer and it's ironic, you're like, oh, I get what you're trying to do with this at the same time. I think all of the internet was just rolling its eyes. No. <laughs> well, and it's hard, right? Because it will have been somebody well-meaning, but anyone who's worked in an agency knows the process those kind of things go through and how many checks and balances there are. So it's like, wow, nobody looked at this and said, and I think partly that's, you know, when we talk about the challenge of lack of balance in senior leadership, to me it always goes back to nobody in the room speaking up and being like, hang on a minute. Mm -hmm. Like if you think about the number of times things have reached the market, whether it's racially biased AI or pink beer, it's all about having somebody in the room who can be like, hang on a minute. Yeah. Let's think about this. This is not cool. And who do you think is someone who's uh, doing it right? Obviously, very engaged on this topic. And um. Um, I don't know, I'm not, I actually really like Glossier. I think, um, you know, they're a makeup brand and, you know, I'm not particularly into, I'm not in that kind of beauty world very much. But I think what I, what I like about them is they, you know, they've really focused on the angle of starting by doing one thing well. They only yeah. have like 10 products or so. Mm -hmm. um, obviously the branding is very beautiful. I like the fact they're kind of shot on women who look you know, obviously they're still super beautiful, yeah. but they're not like unreachable models. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Monkey as well, I would pick them out, um, partly because my friend Fiona is the head of social and I think she does an amazing job. Um, they just have a very distinctive and playful tone of voice. You know, Monkey and Glossier are not really targeted at women, women of my age. They tend to be targeted at women who are slightly younger. But I think with Monkey, they have done amazing collaborations with like feminist artists. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, they've really leveraged, you know, they are a cool high street Swedish brand. But what they've done is leverage that power and that voice to understand what their community cares about. And what their community cares about is feminism, intersectionality, um, advancing the kind of cause of celebrating cool yeah. female arts. Um, and they did an amazing campaign last year around sex positivity that was pretty bold, I thought, for like a fashion. I mean, you know, the Swedish, obviously, yeah. but still pretty bold. And I think um, they've really used their voice for things that they care about. And I really respect and appreciate that. I love that. And how was your San Francisco uh, event, Lesbian Sea Code, how was that? It was great, yeah. I mean, I went to, um, when I was in Tel Aviv, they actually ran it and it was great and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I got asked to go and speak. And I think what was so cool about it is it was 5,000 um, LGBTQA women yes. and supporters. <laughs> and we weren't talking about being women, right? I right. think what I liked most about it was it was just amazing women sharing their amazing work. Um, and my particular favorite I've seen her talk before, but I'm always struck by her energy. Um, Megan Smith, so she mm -hmm. used to be the US CTO. Um, she was at Google before that, so my boss used to work for her. Um, and I've met her a few times, and she just has the strongest positive energy of anyone I've ever met. And I say that advisedly, like <laughs> she is a ball of incredible stuff. And in Megan Smith's talk, what I really liked was she had this line where she said, we keep forgetting that this community's been badasses all along. Yeah. You know, she kind of made the point that for many people in the room, including me, a lot of us have had, you know, have had to kind of defend ourselves in certain ways, yeah. had to kind of be articulate about who we are and what we care about. Um, and that was just really, I don't love the word empowering because it suggests mm -hmm. that we're not already empowered. 100%. And I certainly would never call myself unempowered, but it felt pretty cool. Um, and I think a lot of the topics and themes that came out, you know, there was four women who work in the Trump administration right now who are civil servants who are all queer. Mm -hmm 
who are talking about how it feels to be working for, you know, they see themselves as serving the US population rather than the president in particular. Um, and it was just really exciting. I think the big themes for me were definitely future of work, um, definitely the potentials and the need for kind of ethics behind things like blockchain yes. um, and the power of communities. We've talked about this already, but I think what was so exciting for me was the number of people who traveled to that conference from like Jordan and Panama and places where they can't be the proud lesbian, bisexual, whatever woman they are. Um, and I just thought that was really cool. Like it mm -hmm. felt like it felt like a real movement and just the scale of it was pretty exciting. Oh, amazing. It, I was following on social media. Yeah, it so great. it's very cool. I um, I would love to know what are three words that are in your headspace right now. That's so hard. Um, I think one word is intent, intentional. Um, I guess one thing I try and always hold dear and don't always manage to is this piece around always acting with intent, mm -hmm. around always making sure that everything I do goes back to my values and what I care about yeah. and what I've told myself will be my passions for this year. I think these always change, right? But I think um, in general, I'm pretty consistent. I always have new obsessions and new passions I fall down the rabbit hole with, but there are certain pieces that are really important to me. Um, I think the second one would be feminine. And I use that word advisedly as comparatively, I feel comparatively girly in some ways. Um, I think when we talked earlier about new styles of leadership, um, I ran an event a few years ago about feminine power as a, mm -hmm. as a notion. Um, and the idea of feminine power is softer power, um, getting things to go your way through negotiation, through compromise, through relationship building, through women's situations. And what was really interesting is how few men came because they saw that title and they were like, oh, this is not for me. <laughs> um, and I guess the third word is always going to be communities. I think deliberately with a plural. Um, I think this is how we kind of win together. You know, if you look at the elections in the UK and the US in the last couple of years, it feels like some people want us to be fragmented and alone, but I don't think that's what humans want or need. And I really hope and think we'll see, you know, ever more kind of community building and ever more people like us that spend their life's work trying to kind of bring people together and not push them apart. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Next time I'm meeting another Sarah, this time Sarah Hanner who I met while she was traveling from LA. She's a creative director, writer, and spiritual psychologist. I won't tell you more. You